It's Tuesday, and you know what that means. It's Blinded by Sports. It's fall here in Florida, finally, Sean. It's 75 degrees today. I know, it's a beautiful day. I'm Colin Fuchs, your host this week for Blinded by Sports, joined by the Candy Clark himself, Sean Clark. Sean, how are you today? I'm doing great. As the Joker said, I am ready to watch the world burn tonight because it's, yes, this is Tuesday. That also means it's election night. So hopefully everyone listened to this voted because me and Colin both did. Ready to watch the world burn. But hey, college football is back. So we'll talk about that down the road. But as usual, we have our footballs to talk about. So take it away, Colin. That's right. College football is back. And yes, we know it's been back for a few weeks, but it's officially back with the return of the Pac-12. But as Sean said, we'll discuss more of that later. Starting in England, as we always do with the Premier League. Sean, your boys, the Gunners. It's been a long time. The last time that they won at Old Trafford, I was in the sixth grade, to put that in perspective. Yes, that's right. Arsenal finally beat Man United. One to nothing on their own grounds at Old Trafford. Sean, you know you're you know you're hyped. This is the first away win in a long time against any of the big six teams, uh, big six clubs. How how are you feeling? How's your reactions? Break it break it down for us. Finally, for the first time in over five years, five. Long years. Arsenal wins a road match against the top six. I'm going to cry. This is beautiful. All right. Let's be objective analyst. Let's be an objective analyst here. Um, Thomas Partey showed why he is an absolute set. He shut down the midfield of Manchester United all match long. Mohamed Elneny has stepped up to be a good midfielder as well. He's really emerged in the last couple matches. And against Manchester United, he was also excellent. He and Partey were just shut down Manchester United's midfield. They didn't really have great chances all match long. Paul Pogba and Fred just looked completely ineffective, which was beautiful to see from an Arsenal perspective. Manchester United just didn't have any flow whatsoever. And the thing about Arsenal is they're a defensive club this season. They've only scored nine goals this season so far. But that's important because Arsenal has built up the defensive midfield with the with the signing of Thomas Partey. But also, Gabriel is so good for Arsenal right now. He is he's the most aggressive defender we've had. He is great at clearing chances. He has that physical presence in the box that we haven't had since the prime Laurent Calcioni. It's a name I have not said in several years, uh, or a name anyone has said in several years. He, he really brings this different element to the defense. And when he and Rob Holding are starting at the back line, they've hardly conceded any goals this season. As a matter of fact, only one. These two at the back line have been phenomenal together. They bring this aggression. They bring this physicality that we haven't seen from Arsenal in the last few years. Now, their attack still looks a little shaky. The only reason they were able to get a goal is because Hector Bellerin drew a penalty. But a goal is a goal. One nil is three points. I will take it. And, and yeah, how about Hector Bellerin? He actually set up Arsenal's best chance for a goal in, in the field of play as he just missed Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang on a cross. And Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang stepped up and nailed the penalty later, which Hector Bellerin drew. So the back line, the defensive midfield was really solid for Arsenal. It just goes to show that even though Arteta was under Pep Guardiola, man said, and they emphasized the attack, what was Mikel Arteta's position when he was a player? Defensive midfield. So is it a surprise that defensive midfield is the strongest position for Arsenal right now? I don't know, not really, because he, he knows that as well as anyone. Arsenal was really becoming a lockdown defensive club, which – I never in my wildest dreams would have thought this possible even a year ago because Arsenal is known for bad defense. But, hey, as long as Arsenal can score and Gabriel holding party and Alneni can keep it up, okay, we may have something here. I'm not going to get my hopes up because Arsenal literally brings nothing but pain. 
But you know what? This week I can I can be happy. I can celebrate because progress is continuing to be shown. Yes, Arsenal is still ninth in the Premier League table. Oh well, we have the Europa League. We can possibly sneak into the Champions League next year through that. Although I don't want to watch us lose four one at Chelsea in the Europa League final game, which is still the most painful loss as an Arsenal fan I've had so far. But you know what? Progress is made. I'm intrigued to see what they do going forward. Let's see who can step up goal-wise. Please get a playmaker in the January transfer window. But for right now, things are looking okay. They're not looking fantastic. Still struggling to score. But we beat Manchester United, and right now, it's good enough. And I think good enough is what you can take, especially, you know, like I said, it's been since 2006 that Arsenal has even won at Old Trafford, which is mind-blowing to say. To put it in perspective, sir, Alex Ferguson was still coaching at that time. Oh, gosh. Yes. And 2006 was the season Arsenal was in the Champions League. The only year they ever were in the Champions League final was 2006. Continue. And still still their last win there. Uh, And, Sean, I know you're happy about it. They beat Man United at their own game, a penalty kick. You know, (laughs) Manchester United, they lost to their own game, penalty kick to seal it. Uh, one of the things that, you know, you do have to notice though, is Arsenal really does need to be more clinical because this game probably should have been two, maybe even three nil. Uh, Aubameyang uh, missed a curler on his right foot. Saka obviously had the free header in the center of the box that to not even put that on the frame is I can, he's clinching his hands right in front of me. Uh, El Nene had a shot outside the box that went into row Z. Um yeah, they got to be a little bit more clinical. But the Arsenal defense, Sean, you mentioned it yourself. They looked good. Uh, they forced Manchester United into some really uncomfortable situation. Obviously, Thomas Partey did everything he could to shut down Bruno Fernandes, Paul Pogba, doing everything he can there. Uh, I really think not having Anthony Martial on the field for Manchester United is really hurting them. I understand Marcus Rashford's a quality player along with Mason Greenwood. Uh, but just the two of them don't have enough chemistry like Martial and Rashford do. Uh, makes for a really unfortunate situation there. But look at look at where Manchester United currently sit on the table. They're in 15th place. They are currently behind West Ham, Crystal Palace, Aston Villa, and even Newcastle, who obviously I mentioned Newcastle because we're going to talk about them here in just a few seconds. But uh, United settled for a lot. They took a lot of shots from outside their own 18. Really nothing that quality set up until about even the final 10 minutes of the match. And even still, the defense for Arsenal really stepped up and did everything they could. And Manchester United really looked lost. Uh, I don't see Ole Gunnar Skolskar staying at the helm of this club much longer. Uh, you know, they've been screaming for him to be out for a long time. Edison Cavani, once again, not really seeing the pitch all that often, which is surprising considering you really do need a number nine up there to be your go-to striker. Uh, yeah, I think this is just a club right now that's lost on their identity. They don't really have a whole lot going for them. So let's let's see uh, how this United team, this United club shapes up sitting in 15th place behind, you know, previous clubs that I've mentioned. Uh, moving on, though, from one club who's feeling the highs of winning, such as Arsenal, to Everton, who is now on their second Premier League loss in a row, after starting starting the league, you know, with a blast here, sitting comfortably in first, and now falling to fourth in the Premier League, and Liverpool sitting in first again. Uh, Sean, break break it down for me. Obviously, Everton starting hot. What has happened to them in these last two matches? Well, as I talked about after their draw against Liverpool draw in quotation marks because it shouldn't have been a draw that Liverpool should have had the late winner there. Their back line is still isn't very good. They're allowing way too many chances in the penalty box. Newcastle had four shots on target on, on their 11 shots. While Everton had 15 shots only in four on target. Also Everton won possession 63 to 37 and you lost two to one. Oh, and by the way, that one goal was a late goal. It was 2-0 at at one point. So Everton's back line is not looking very good. They've only had one clean sheet this year. Do you know when that was, Colin Fuchs? That that? was the first match of the season against Tottenham. 
That's it. That's their, it's their only clean sheet of the season so far. The fact that they won possession almost by two-thirds, the fact that they had more shots, how would you not win this match? However, there is a good reason. Thomas Rodriguez did not play this match. And the big and the biggest reason he didn't is because, yeah, Hamas, the Premier League is not League One with Monaco. It is not La Liga with Rio Madrid, where back in 2016-17, you were basically the La Liga front runner on your club as Cristiano Ronaldo was bagging Champions League hat tricks. No, that this isn't those two leagues where you can take a lot of matches off. No, no, no. You can't do that in the Premier League. Every club in the Premier League is legit enough to pull out victories. Yes, Fulham and West Bromwich are, eh, they're not great, but there's, but they they can still score a goal or two and, and possibly surprise you. The fact that Hamas Rodriguez was out of shape to play this match, he really wasn't going through an injury. He just wasn't fit to play this match. It shows just how dramatically different the Premier League is from other leagues. The, it's so intense. It's so fast-paced. It's more physical than other leagues are. Other leagues are that there's a there's there's a bad reputation in some of the other leagues because of how soft they can be, especially in La Liga, where it's the same three clubs literally every single season. Yeah, Bundesliga is kind of the same way too, but at least there's a lot of pretty good battles in in the mid of the table. But Thomas didn't play, and because of that. Everton looked lost in the final third. They looked lost. They didn't know what to do. Their midfield wasn't as creative. They looked like the same mediocre club last year. And Newcastle is not a team to be taken lightly. Callum Wilson is one of the most underrated signings of the whole transfer window. Not just in the Premier League, but all of Europe. Callum Wilson is bagging goal after goal for Newcastle United. And Newcastle is winning matches. They are 11th in the Premier League table, which is right at the middle, but they're not a t- club to be taken very lightly. So because of that, they didn't have the, the creativity to overcome Newcastle. If Hamas does it just goes to show if Hamas doesn't play, Everton is the same mediocre club they had last season. But even then, you got to fix your backline, Everton. I keep saying this over and over again, but come on, fix your backline for real. Yeah, this was real poor from Everton. This is, it's, if you're trying to be, you know, one of the top four clubs in the Premier League right now, this is not uh, an outing that you should have had. You mentioned the numbers, Sean, uh, dominated on a lot of the fronts here. Second loss in a row. Penalty came off of, uh, obviously, first goal came off of a penalty in the 56th minute after poor defense led to a poor clearance um, just on a corner that ended up being put away by Callum Wilson. And then in the 84th minute, they were caught on the counter. Callum Wilson ended up scoring on a deflected cross. And then Calvert-Lewin for Everton made it interesting. And he seemed to be the only one out there on that field to show any sort of life for Everton. Obviously, Calvert-Lewin being one of the top three scorers in the Premier League right now. But you mentioned it. No, James Rodriguez is a huge problem because what have we mentioned week in and week out since James has signed for Everton, his ability to be that playmaker when he's not on the field. Guess what? Everton doesn't have a true number 10. Gilfrey Sigerson is not a true number 10. That's not what he's meant to do. We obviously saw what he, what he was trying. He had a decent chance on goal, but he ended up shanking that as well. But James Rodriguez is what makes this team tick. He's the one that you're looking for to put in a quality ball from a corner to put, be able to switch up field and be able to change a pace of play. Uh, this is, no, James Rodriguez is just a big problem for Everton. And I, you mentioned it. Yeah, in La Liga, you could take a game off because, you know, you had Ronaldo to carry you. You had Benzema or even Bale to carry you. You can't do that here. The Premier League, we've obviously seen these smaller tier clubs like Aston Villa, or Leeds United, even Newcastle stepping up and begging three points in this league. And for Everton now to be sitting in fourth after coming off of a, such a hot start should not only be worried for James Rodriguez and you know, the toffees at Everton, but for Carlo Ancelotti as well, because he started, he started really well. He obviously wanted Rodriguez there to be his ticker for the club. Rodriguez played in the last match. And obviously, like we mentioned, two, two losses in a row now, not, not great if you're an Everton fan. And uh, 
hopefully they can get things turned around, but Liverpool and Leicester City are looking pretty dominant in the league now after Everton looked real strong. Yeah, absolutely. It, Leicester is looking very strong right now. They just beat Leeds 3-1 to one very easily. They, they just have this array of playmaking that they didn't have at the end of last season when they completely crumbled during Project Restart. So hopefully Liverpool doesn't run away with it because it would make my claim that the Premier League is wide open look really bad. But we'll see what happens right now. Everton, get your fill-in-the-blank together. Fill-in-the-blank, indeed. Moving from football to football, skipping across the pond as we often do here. Let's talk. Let's let's go up to uh, let's go up to Pittsburgh, shall we, Sean? The Pittsburgh Steelers currently sit at seven and zero, oh. uh, dispatching you know uh, the Baltimore Ravens in their most recent victory. Leaves us begging a question, considering they are now the only undefeated team remaining. Are they the best team? in the NFL as the Pittsburgh Steelers, the best team overall in the NFL sitting at seven and oh, take it away, Sean. All right. I just want to pull up some, the box score for this Raven Steelers game. I, I got to point out a couple things here. All right, Colin, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you a couple stats here. I want, I want you to tell me, uh, I want you to tell me if the team with these stats would usually win a game. Okay. We probably have the same ones on our sheets, Sean. <laughs> All right. So 50, 457 to 221 lead in total yards. 265 to 48 rushing yards. Usually, if you have those stats, usually you win, right? You would think. But the problem is the team that led those two categories also was on the wrong end of these two. Pittsburgh Steelers had three penalties. Ravens, uh, Ravens had nine penalties for 110 yards. Ravens also had four turnovers. Steelers had one. So if I were to tell you those two uh, stats about total yards and rushing yards, would you say that team would win? Uh, yeah, normally you, you would think. You would think. You would think. But if I also told you the other, you would think, oh, well, their chances don't look so good. Well, that's exactly what happened. The Baltimore Ravens more than doubled the total yards the Steelers gained. They more than quadrupled the amount of rushing yards. However, they had quadruple more turnovers, and they had three times as many penalties. Also, Lamar Jackson threw under 200 yards yet again. The Baltimore Ravens passing offense is anemic. See, this is what I was telling everybody about Lamar Jackson. He's a glorified running back. And I, you have no idea how much flack I got for saying that last year. Last year, Lamar was tearing up the league. The Ravens won 12 games in a row. I was like, oh, Lamar Jackson, he's the new great quarterback in the NFL. He's going to take over this league. The league isn't right. And I said, okay, well, let me know when he wins a playoff game. Uh, oh yeah, let, let me know when you, let me know when you know he can throw better. He can throw as well as Patrick Mahomes. Oh wait, he can't. Oh, interesting. Wait, who won the Super Bowl last year? Oh wait, it was it was Patrick Mahomes. Okay, so Lamar Jackson has been figured out. He has thrown under two hundred yards yet again. He's done that more than four times, Colin. Come on, what are you doing? This as I'm gonna I'm gonna slightly copy a phrase from black panther is this your mvp is this your mvp come on you're telling me that this guy was supposed to take the NFL. stop you have to throw the ball consistently well in the nfl and even at his best last year i never got this feel that lamar jackson could do that it's one thing to throw 500 yards against the dolphins and the rams when they were bad last year but it's nothing to do that in the playoffs oh wait you Choked against the Titans, a six nine and sixty nine and seven team. Oh, all right then. You oh wait, you lost to Ryan Tannehill in the playoffs. Oof, good job, league MVP. To me, this shows that the Ravens, the the, the Ravens are a very good team. They're still an elite team, but the problem is they're not a championship team. That's because they don't have the quarterback to get them there. 
And the Steelers are undefeated, but I'm sorry. They've gotten incredibly lucky the last two weeks. They, the only reason they beat the Titans is because the Titans can't stop a third down to save their fill-in-the-blank lives. Also, Steven Goskowski missed a field goal. Also, Ryan Tannehill threw an intentional grounding. And then against the Ravens, you, you were more than double-gained on by the Ravens. 457 total yards for the Ravens. Oh, yeah, you have the best defense in the NFL, apparently. Interesting. The, the Steelers are very lucky. They, they're good late, but they're asking for a disaster. They do have a good defense, although uh, looks a very looks very questionable after the second half against Tennessee and against the Ravens. And Ben Roethlisberger has some good moments. It's not consistently great, though. So I... Yeah, the Steelers are not the best team in the NFL. Still the Chiefs, by far. It, I still think the Buccaneers are better than the Steelers, even though they did not play well last night. But it's Tom Brady against the Giants. He never plays well against the Giants. I would know. I would know. And I still think the Seattle Seahawks are better than the Pittsburgh Steelers. We just haven't seen the best from the Seahawks yet. So I don't think the Steelers are the best team in the NFL, even though they only undefeated team. I think this Ravens-Steelers game is more about how Lamar ain't it more than the Steelers are it. Yeah, you, you, I, you and I, I think are in agreement, which to be totally honest, I was shocked. I thought you were going to say that they are, uh, but they're not the best team uh, by any stretch of the imagination. First off, look at the opponents they've had to face before they took on Tennessee and then Baltimore. The New York Giants, the Denver Broncos, the Houston Texans, the Philadelphia Eagles, and the Cleveland Browns. You know, we thought we were going to get a great shootout between Cleveland and Pittsburgh, we were obviously proven wrong on that because, you know, apparently all of Cleveland decided to take a nap that day. But then they finally get back-to-back weeks where they get quality opponents. And to be honest, they were outplayed in both of those games. Granted, Tennessee and Pittsburgh was a little bit more even. Baltimore should have won this last game, and it shouldn't have even been close, to be totally honest. You mentioned Lamar Jackson not being great in the passing game. You're right. I mean, that's not what he does. He hasn't – He's that's never been what he's known for. He's been known for his Michael, Visk, Michael Vick-esque running style as to where he just breaks into speed and then takes off. Michael Vick could throw, and he was left-handed. Like, at least that's what he had going for him. Um, but once again, the saving grace for the Pittsburgh Steelers was their defense. And, yes, this is still a quality defense. Granted, they allowed as many rushing yards as they did. They still won the game, and it was all in the back of their defense because James Conner hasn't done anything special. Juju Smith-Schuster hasn't been super special this season. You even look at Ben Roethlisberger, that game against Tennessee, he wasn't fantastic against them either. He wasn't even great in this matchup. Just the, the, There's nothing special about this Pittsburgh team besides their defense, and even still, it's not that special. But yes, they've got Bud Dupree, they've got TJ Watt, Cameron Hayer, Joe Hayden. You know, they have a list of names that, you know, stack up and can, you know, make plays when needed. But this is just, it's not a special team by any means. They shouldn't be 7-0, but you look at their continuing schedule after this week, and it only gets easier for them because they go back and they play Dallas, who is currently Dalton List and Prescott, Prescott List. Then they go and play Cincinnati, and then they play Jacksonville, and then they have Baltimore again. So they have another three games where I would argue they end up being 10-0 and at some point, just because they're not facing any quality opponents. Uh, and then, yeah, like I said, they got Baltimore again, who, if I'm John Harbaugh, you already know he's not going to be satisfied losing to Pittsburgh, especially in a game that you absolutely dominated. Uh, Baltimore, I think, will get that first loss of the season against Pittsburgh uh, in that rematch because I'll be shocked if Pittsburgh can pull it off against them again, especially since Tennessee came so close. It was a missed field goal and an intentional ground, a bunch of things that ended that, that game. Uh, Baltimore and Lamar Jackson, they, they need to be better. You And I don't really get how you can do much more. 457 total yards, 265 total rushing. You even dominated the time of possession by almost 10 minutes. I mean, come on. They're, you've got to be better. you you got to learn to close out a game, and this is still growing pains from Lamar Jackson. No, he's not the MVP. Russell Wilson is still the MVP of the league. Look at what he just did to San Francisco, case in point. Uh, moving on, though. You know, we're talking growing pains of Lamar Jackson. To let's talk about someone who's taking the reins now of a new offense. Miami Dolphins taking on the Los Angeles Rams. Tua finally takes the takes the stage as the starter. 
And me, you know, for me personally, I wasn't impressed in, entirely. Uh, through what, 12 for 21, so just over 50%, uh, only 93 passing yards and a touchdown. Uh, and once again, this was a, a game decided by defense. Granted, Jared Goff wasn't much better. He had 61 passing attempts. And when you have Jared Goff throwing over 60 passing attempts, even throwing over 50 passing attempts, that's not really what you want, especially for a team that had Todd Gurley over previous seasons. And now you don't have a running game. Aaron Donald was basically shut down this entire game. Yeah, he's still a threat, but he really didn't do anything as he only had one tackle on the night. So for the LA Rams and for the Dolphins, you know, the the, the Dolphins to end up getting the win. And in good ways, congrats for Tua going 1-0 as a starter. But the fact that Miami even won this game is mind-blowing. They had 145 total yards. Like, I, how do you win? You, you literally averaged less. You had less than two touchdowns when it came to total yardage. You didn't go 200 yards downfield. That makes no sense to me as to how you come up with a win on this. Granted, yes, you had a special teams uh, return touchdown. Yeah, this is Miles Gaskin obviously had a rushing touchdown and a two through one, but even still, this is, I'm still amazed that Miami pulled this off. Tua, I think, definitely needs more time to develop. Uh, this was just a poor game from the Los Angeles Rams after, you know, we've discussed the NFC West being so fun to watch. Yeah, what this was just a bizarre, bizarre week of football. I would honestly argue this was just a bizarre week of football in general. What's it, what's your take from, you know, the game out in Miami? It was a bizarre week. We saw the one win Vikings win at Green Bay. We saw the Giants almost beat the Buccaneers in the in the NFC, and we we also saw the Bengals beat the Titans. Which yikes! Uh, yeah, but looking at this game, this was even weirder than those three games. Colin, not only did the Dolphins win, but they were up 28 to 7 at one point. They were on the scoreboard dominating this game. The Rams scored not so many yards in the second half that the Tory yards ended up being 471 to 145. Good Lord. 340 to 90 passing yards, 131 to 55 rushing yards. Time of possession, almost 30, if you round it up, 37 minutes to 23 minutes. And you still lost the game. They, they allowed an 88-yard punt return by Jakeem Graham. They allowed a 78-yard fumble return for a touchdown by Andrew Van Ginkle. Who heard of him, who heard of him before this Sunday? And Miles Gaskin's one-yard touchdown run was set up by another Rams turnover. The Rams just imploded in the second quarter. It was 21-3. to Oh, too bad it wasn't 28 to three in, in the second quarter. The Rams just gave the ball away and the Dolphins capitalized. And the Dolphins have a legit defense. Brian Flores has established a good culture here in Miami. And for Tua, there's nowhere to go it up. He was rough. He looked lost out there. He he threw less than 100 yards, which is, is a credit to the Rams defense. The Rams do have one of the best defenses in the NFL. The Rams defense is very good statistically. But if you're the Rams, de- if you're the Rams defense, I need hazard pay after the offense gave the in the special teams gave the game away. This was ridiculous. The the defense was good, and Tua, he just looked very flustered. He he didn't he didn't know how to get into the flow of the game. He 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 wasn't under a ton of pressure, but when he was, he looked lost against it. But for, here's the thing about Tua. There's nowhere to go but up. I don't think he could have much of a worse debut in terms of lack of production. He's going to get more comfortable. He's going to improve. He's going to be more comfortable. And he's not going to play a defense quite like the Rams going for. He plays the Cardinals defense next weekend. Cardinals are good. Don't get me wrong. You would know, Seahawks fan. But the, the Cardinals defense isn't very good. And I think that as long as Buda Baker doesn't wreck everything, Tua could have some success. And then after that, you get the Chargers. Yeah. The, the, what was that, L.A.? What, what was that? 24-3, you lost the Broncos. Great job. But I'm intrigued to see what the Dolphins are doing going forward. I think the Dolphins have one of the brightest futures in the NFL. 
the fact that Tua is nowhere to go but up, and the Dolphins, they have a 5-11 and 11 roster. Let's, let, let's be honest here. They have a 5-11 and 11 roster, and they're currently 4-3. and three. And as I predicted in my preseason AFC Street for the Rich Report, I said the Dolphins would finish about the Patriots, and, well, here we are. I know that pains you to say, Sean. You know, it does, tremendous. You being a Patriots fan. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, you're right. This, this was just a poor debut, and I think you look at this is just a, a tale of two different stories. You look at where he was. Obviously, he was been riding the bench for a little bit, watching Ryan Fitzpatrick doing what he's been doing. And then, you know, he was a star, obviously, at Alabama, being coached under the greatest college football coach of all time in Nick Saban. Um, so, you know, apples and oranges, two totally different things, obviously two totally different leagues. Uh, I am excited to see him finally get some comfort on this, finally to develop a solid relationship. He obviously didn't get a chance to even have a preseason this year, uh, which for, you know, incoming quarterbacks is huge. That's one of the biggest things that helped them develop um, and, you know, lets the, lets the team really see what he's able to do. Uh, so for him to, you know, be starting here in what week, what week seven, week eight, whatever week we're on now, week seven. Um, eight. It, yeah. We is, you know, not surprising, especially cause you know, normally you have four preseason games. So arguably he would have started on maybe week two or three, but obviously no preseason. So Tua, congratulations. You're officially one to know as a starter. Uh, yeah. The Rams, what, what even was that? And what was a, just a bizarre week of, NFL football in general. Sean, before we sign off, anything else from you? Stay safe on this election night. Don't hate anybody for who they voted. If they tell you, vote, please. I mean, this will already come out by the time election day is over, but have a safe night and look forward to the return of college football on Saturday. Arizona State versus USC. My beloved Trojans are back in action. Can't wait to watch. Taking on our... uh our former Arizona Sun Devils. Obviously, we didn't go there, but living in Arizona. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, hopefully whatever happens, happens. The, the, fate, of, the fate of our few, next four years and even, who knows, decades to come is, is going to be over within a mere few hours. So interesting, interesting to say the least when it comes to voting. Bizarre week of sports. We got more to talk about. Obviously, MLS playoffs are going to be starting here soon with Decision Day coming up next week. Stay tuned with an article from me on the Candid Clark. But for now, I've been Colin Fuchs for Blinded by Sports. I've been joined by the Candid Clark himself, Sean Clark. Be sure to make sure that you're checking out thecandidclark.com for all pop culture, sports, any sort of article that you want, it's there. I've been Colin Fuchs, and we will see you next Tuesday. Oh, my gosh. College football is back. It only took until November, but we actually got, we actually got the real college football back, a.k.a. the Pac-12. Very exciting stuff. Hello. This is Ahead of the Count on the Cannon Clark Podcast. I am your host, the Cannon Clark himself, Sean Clark, and I am joined by suffering LSU fan Johnny Crane. John how are we doing today on election day? We're recording this on election day. How you doing? Yes. Yes. We are recording this on election day. I'm still trying to fathom my noggin around. Oh my gosh. Football is back because the Pac-12 is back. I mean, I, I guess if you want to say that, go ahead. This is still a, a pretty much a watched season if you ask me. And no, that has nothing to do with the LSU issues, if we put it like that. But anyway, yeah, let's get into this. Let's get into this, and obviously when this is published, it'll be after Election Day, but hopefully hopefully, everyone listening to this voted. We, both me and Johnny voted. But voting, voting is something we cannot take for granted, so hopefully we all vote, and please don't riot if your candidate doesn't win. I, I can't trust that enough. Please don't riot. All that aside, let's get into this. So obviously because this is ahead of the count, we got to talk baseball. Last time we recorded this was – the day of game six of the world series. And now game six world series is over and the Dodgers came out on top. They, they defeated the Tampa Bay Rays three to one to win their first world series in 32 years. A good friend, the rich report had one of the greatest nights of his life. Uh, he soaked me in champagne as we watched it. It was, it was a lot of fun. The, the Dodgers are champions. Johnny, what are your what are your thoughts on the Dodgers winning the championship and this whole World Series and Game Six? 
Well, I wrote a column for it on your site. Be sure to check that out, folks. But pretty much this was a long time coming. When you think of an up-and-coming team like the Dodgers back in 2013, they won the division in 2013, and they lost in the playoffs, as we all know. Usually, for many other teams, the following year, they can sort of, again, falter but build up to the World Series. But for the Dodgers, right after 2013 happened, everyone expected them to win a World Series year in and year out. They were pretty much given that mantra right from the get-go. And it took them a while. They had a lot of struggles. The bullpen, Clayton Kershaw, the offense didn't really get going, managerial decisions. And all of that pretty much came to a head this season with a global pandemic put on top of all of that already. So when you look at them winning the World Series, global pandemic or not, it was a long time coming, but it was also an expected thing. They were the best team during the regular season. They had the best starting pitching, the most consistent offense, top to bottom. And they had a pretty solid bullpen, too, all considering. And they all put it together. Clayton Kershaw was really good. Corey Seager and Mookie Betts, they drove in the runs in the final game. And they were pretty much the consistent bats for the entire duration of the postseason. Dave Roberts stuck with his gut. And the big thing to me in the game was that instead of going with Kenley Jansen in the ninth inning, he went with Julio Urias, which is actually pretty surprising. You would think in a, in a save situation, they would go with their solidified closer, but they went with the hot hand. They went with the young hot hand and Urias, and it paid off. And of course, the controversy of this game didn't really come from the Dodgers per se. It more so came from the Tampa Bay Rays pulling Blake Snell which does not make any sense, no matter how you look at it from the numbers or intangible perspective. But no matter, the Dodgers capitalized on it, and they won. And when you look at the celebration, it just it all came to a head to me when it was found out that Justin Turner had COVID-19. You know, when you saw them celebrating, you thought, well, you know, they broke their curse, so to speak. They finally got over the hump. They're celebrating, but then the normalcy, so to speak, all went away when COVID-19 was brought right back into the equation. And we're going to be seeing that in the sports world, I imagine, for a little while longer, I imagine. But the Dodgers won, COVID-19 or not. They got over the hump. And, well, they had the best team to do it, and they finally did it. Long time coming, but they did it. Be sure to check out Johnny, John, Johnny Crane's article as he – discusses the, the journey the Dodgers took to get there. Now, here's my thoughts on the World Series. I'm going to sum it all up in a quote. Those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Now, Johnny Crane and I are both very educated in history. We both love history. When we, we saw the film Midway last year, and we had a lot of conversations about history. His, history is something we both love. And that, that is one of the greatest quotes ever because of how great it is. It's very cliched. It's said a lot, but it's true. Kevin Cash, you clearly did not learn from last year's World Series. You clearly did not learn because you did the exact same thing that A.J. Hinch did last year. What do I mean by that? Let me, let's rewind the clocks back to a year ago when the Washington Nationals defeated the Houston Astros, I mean, the Houston Astros in the World Series last year in seven games. Zach Greinke was pitching a shutout in the first six innings of the World Series, and the Astros were up two to nothing. They were on their way to winning a second World Series in three years. They, they decided to pull Zach Greinke in favor of Will Harris, and the Nationals took the lead three to two in the top of the seventh inning. Will Harris was the one that gave up was, was the one that gave up the runs. And guess what? He was the worst starting pitcher for the Astros that postseason statistically. Fast forward to last week. Blake Snell was dealing. The, the Rays were up one to nothing. He gave up a hit to Austin Barnes. And he is replaced by Nick Anderson. Okay. Oh, by the way, Nick Anderson was the worst pitcher for the Tampa Rays this postseason. And guess what? He gave up two runs, and the Dodgers took the lead. Wait a minute. Okay, let me get this straight. You're telling me that that in both World Series, you were leading on a shutout. You sub in a pitcher who was the worst pitcher for you all postseason, and then you trail by one run that same inning. 
It happened both times, Mr. Crane. Both times. I don't get it. Mookie Betts couldn't touch Blake Snell when he was next. But you're telling me you're going to put in Nick Anderson, who was terrible all postseason, against Mookie Betts, a top five player in Major League Baseball? Are you serious? This was one of this was the this is one of the dumbest managerial decisions I've ever seen. Just as bad as AJ Hinch last year. If I'm Blake Snell, I demand a trade because if if you're not going to let me pitch in the biggest game of our season, why should I pitch for you? Now, obviously, he's probably not going to do that, but it, I would because I guarantee if if you tell mo, if you ask most managers what they would have done in that position, I guarantee a lot of them would say I would have kept Snell in. But no, Cash had to be super analytical. S- stop. Even you pointed this out, but even analytically, it didn't make any sense. But let's give credit to the Dodgers; they were the best team all year. I said on ahead of the count they would win the World Series over the Rays in six games. And they did. Dodgers needed Mookie Betts to get over the hump, and that's what happened. Credit to the Dodgers. And and the last thing I'll say is I'm happy for Clayton Kershaw. The guy has been snake bit as much as any player I've ever seen in baseball. And to see him cry and celebrate after the final out was a beautiful sight. It doesn't matter how much you hate the Dodgers. You, you got to feel happy for him in that situation. The guy has been a class act citizen. He's been a great guy on and off the field. And to, to see him finally be vindicated for all his failures was, was an absolutely beautiful thing to see. I totally agree. And I think that at this point, I don't think there's anything else Clayton Kershaw really needs to do to get in the Hall of Fame. I thought he was a Hall of Famer to begin with. But, of course, there were some folks out there that said, no, he shouldn't. But, yeah, he's in it now. Absolutely. Congrats to the Dodgers for winning the World Series. That puts a cap on this baseball season. We, we got through this baseball season. Despite, you know, the Marlins and Cardinals basically having two weeks without playing, they got through this season. All credit to baseball for doing that. The Justin Turner wasn't an ideal situation, but we don't need to go into that. And the last thing I'll say before we move on to the next topic is that the Tampa Bay Rays are a good team. They have good pitching. They have solid hitters. Randy Rosarino really broke out as a star this postseason. And the Rays are going to be good going forward. They showed that, that small market teams with lower payroll can still succeed. You just got to develop your youth really well. You got to sign Smart free. You can't just go out and sign big free agents. You got to sign the correct free agents. And that's exactly what they did. You got to make good trades. You know, the Chris Archer trade where they completely fleeced the Pittsburgh pirates. Uh, Check out Johnny Crane's column on that trade for the rich report. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with this entertaining world series and I'm intrigued to see what happens this off season. Yes. You have to develop. Yes. You have to trade. Yes. You have to draft. Yes, you have to sign. You also have to, I don't know, leave your starter in for another inning in the final do-or-die game for your season. Just an idea. All right, let's go. Absolutely correct. So, yeah, like I said, college football is actually back because the Pac-12 is back. There is, To me, there is no college football without the Pac-12. But biases aside, LSU has been playing football games the defending national champions – Yes, LSU were the national champions last season, but oh boy, they're not looking so good this season. They sit at two and three. Yeah, they lost to Auburn 48 to 11. Yes, the defending national champions lost to Auburn 48 to 11. The LSU Tigers currently sit at two and three. Rough stuff. So, Johnny Crane, the diehard LSU Tigers fan, the floor is yours. Please, please explain why your favorite team is not looking very good. Well, before I really get into it, it needs to be said. They lost a lot of personnel last year. Do I need to go through all the draft picks that the NFL teams poached the Tigers with? I don't think I need to. Clyde, Burrow, Jefferson, you name it, they probably got drafted. They're probably playing right now in the NFL. With that aside, 
Also, they lost Joe Brady. Okay. They also lost the defensive coordinator in Dave Aranda. And the big thing with Dave Aranda was that his defense was a 3-4 defense. So in the offseason, Ed Orgeron has said for a while now that he's wanted to transition back to the 4-3 defense under Les Miles. And he got his defensive coordinator candidate in Bo Pelini. Yes, the former LSU Tiger, Bo Pelini. Now, let's look at this defense. Again, they've lost a lot of personnel. And I'm not even talking about the personnel they lost after a COVID pandemic came into the equation. It has been tough. Let's just put it like that. The last time LSU, look, let me backtrack even more. LSU has already allowed three 40-point-plus performances to their opponent. Three games, okay? The last time they allowed three-plus 30-point, 40-point games was in 1993. 1993. And by the way, this is a shortened season. And by the way, there are still five games left of the season. By the way, they also play Florida, they play Alabama, they play A&M. So unless the defense really takes a step forward, that number might be a lot worse for LSU. But why is the defense as bad as it is? Well, again, loss of personnel. But when I'm watching the defense, at some point, it doesn't become a talent issue. I think it becomes a coaching issue. And that's really hard to say. And I really want to give Bo Pelini some benefit of the doubt. I want to give Bo Pelini and Ed Orgeron some benefit of the doubt. Because, well, who hired Joe Brady? It was Ed Orgeron. So you have to give his hires at least a little bit of a grain of salt. And you have to give them some time to develop and refine the talent they have and recruit the talent that they need to get the defense and get to get the overall team to where it wants to be. And to transition from a 3-4 to a 4-3, that takes time, even without a pandemic added to the equation. But even still, no personnel or not, raw talent or refined talent or not, it's just blown coverages. Defenders are not even close to the wide receivers. Not even close. They're several 10-plus yards apart. And this, to me, is either a lack of communication or just a lack of effective coaching. And that's on Bo Pelini. At the end of the day, yes, the players on the field have to execute and make the plays themselves. But if the coaches and the, and the coordinators are telling them to position 10-plus yards away, and then they're getting burned by 10-plus yards away, that's a problem. And I don't know how to fix it. I don't know what the issue is. You can't. If I could snap it by a finger, I would. But I'm not sure if the answer is to fire Bo Pelini and to go with someone else because the recruiting class that they're getting for next year and the season after next year is really good on the defensive side. It's really strong on the defensive side. And the personnel in those recruiting classes benefit a 4-3 defense. And they supplement a pretty diminished roster that was hit by the NFL draft this past draft. So... Look, has Bo Pelini been good? No, he is not. Do I think he's the long-term answer? I'm not sure. But you have to sort of give him the time because if you just fire him right now, that puts you all the way back at square one and your championship effects on the recruiting side almost get diminished too because all those defensive players have been recruited under Bo Pelini and and, and Orgeron. And if you take one of those away, you're likely going to lose all of them and your defense is just going to be back at square one. Look, the other side of the coin is, okay, you have to give Bo Pelini some time. You have to give him some benefit of the doubt, for better or worse. You have to have that two- or three-year cycle where he can get the players that he wants. But on the other hand, and again, hindsight is twenty twenty. no pun intended, you just won a national championship. Dave Aranda was lost in the offseason. Are you trying to tell me that there was no other candidate out there aside from Bo Pelini that the LSU Tigers could have gotten? Are you trying to tell me that there were no other candidates banging on the door wanting the job? Are you telling me Bo Pelini was the only option that was really considered? That, to me, is the part where I might have a problem with this hire. Maybe the higher bombs like it has so far, maybe it improves as the season and for future seasons continue. But 
going into the offseason, are you trying to tell me that Bo Pelini was your go-to hire from the get-go? I find that hard to believe, and I find that hard to fathom from an LSU perspective that you couldn't get or at least potentially interview or look into other potentially higher and better candidates. That's my gripe. That's my big concern is that right from the get-go, you could have went with someone flashier and more modern with the game as opposed to Bo Pelini. But regardless, it's not looking good for LSU this year. The offense, again, they lost a lot of personnel, but on the offensive side, it's been a bit of a struggle as well. Not too much because of factors in their control. Miles Brennan has a torment dominant, so he hasn't been playing. They've been going with a true freshman quarterback. Their running back duo is practically really green. They had some playing time last year, but they're relatively new. The offensive line is relatively new. The wide receiving core looks pretty good with Terrace Marshall, but after Terrace Marshall, it gets a little bit of a question mark too. Just overall, when you have a historic season like you do last year, you're going to lose a lot of personnel, and that's going to lead to some growing pains, even if the growing pains are more than you expected. Yeah, this is it's been a rough season for LSU. I don't got I don't got much to add to that. Uh, the only thing I will say is Derek Derek Stingley needs to have a rejuvenation, or else his was once promised a top five draft pick status is going to go down, kind of like Randell Pitts. A year ago when he struggled. Now, time for me to have the floor because Pac-12 is back. And what better way to start the Pac-12 than a showdown between two potential first-round quarterbacks? The Arizona State Sun Devils are going to take on the USC Trojans at 10 a.m. Arizona time on Saturday. 10 a.m.? Are you serious? Okay, that's dumb. But that's all I'm going to say about that because I could have a whole rant on how stupid that is. But I don't need to. It's pretty self-explanatory. Now, you at Arizona State and USC. Now, Arizona State really rose at the end of last season. They defeated Oregon on the Saturday night ABC game as Jaden Daniels and Brandon Ayuk basically put a dagger in the hearts of the, the college football playoff hopes of the Oregon Ducks and current Los Angeles Chargers quarterback Justin Herbert. While USC, very inconsistent last season, but 17-year-old Keaton Slovis had a fantastic freshman season. He had 30 touchdowns, 9 interceptions, and 3,502 passing yards in 11 starts. It's pretty, pretty good, I would think. Also, here is a fun fact. Keaton Slovis broke Andrew Luck's 2011 record for the best completion percentage with 71.9%. That that's he completed almost three fourths of his passes. That's insane. Keaton Slovis and Jaden Daniels are two legit quarterbacks, and both of them are very different quarterbacks. Keaton Slovis is a quarterback that's all about he gunslinging. He throws it, he throws a pretty deep ball, throws it down the field. He's a risk taker. In in a lot of ways, he he kind of has. He kind of has this Russell Wilson in the pocket feel to him where he can just throw in the pocket and just lob absolute rainbows. But I think it, I think his closest comparison overall is Jared Goff. J- Jared, uh, Keaton Slovis is a quarterback that's very pocket-based. He can throw a pretty deep ball, but he can also throw on the he, he can also throw on bootlegs, which is what Jared Goff does all the time. So I'm very intrigued to see what Keaton Slovis does season, uh, especially without his top target last year, Michael Pittman Jr. I'm, I'm intrigued to see which playmakers step up for USC. And for Arizona State, Brandon Ayuk is gone. He's now the leading receiver of the San Francisco 49ers. So how will Jaden Daniels step up? What playmakers are going to emerge for ASU? This is really going to be a telling game. What, what are going to be the go-to receivers? Uh Who's going to step up in the running game? Who's going to step up defensively? This is really going to be a litmus test to see what we're going to see out of these two teams. It's both of their opening games, and it's they're they're very evenly matched. I think it, it will just be interesting to see which quarterback comes on top. Because, like I said, these two quarterbacks, along with Sam Howell, who you wrote about on theCanaClark.com, are future NFL first round picks most likely. So I'm interested to see it. Let's see if USC can start the season strong. I will write a preview of the game for the before the game kicks off. 
What are your thoughts on this game? Well, despite the different playmaking styles that both quarterbacks have, they also they also bring a lot of similarities. They're both true freshmen last year that we saw. They both are going to have to improve this year on the fact that they have to have different weapons now. They both lost their top weapons from last season. But on the other side of the coin, when you look at ASU and USC as a whole, I think when you look at Clay Helton and you look at Herm Edwards, Clay Helton, I don't think he's fighting for his job, but it's about time where we need to start seeing results. And for Herm Edwards, how are you going to improve on your sophomore campaign with the Sun Devils? And when you look at the Pac-12 as a whole, I'm not saying it's weaker than in years past, but it looks a lot more wide open to win, so to speak. Oregon lost Justin Herbert in the draft. They're going with a brand new quarterback. Washington has, you know, the issues. Oregon State, eh. Like, there's some parity there that you wouldn't really see in years past. So either of these teams, this is a statement win right from the get-go. This is a statement game. And whoever wins it might have the throttle moving forward to potentially win the Pac-12 outright, perhaps. Obviously, you still have to play Oregon. But again, they're without their starting quarterback from last year. So overall, I think this is a statement game for both programs. This is a statement game for both quarterbacks in their second season. And this is a statement game for both head coaches in the direction of their programs moving forward. So even though it has a Big Ten-esque start time, 10 a.m. is pretty eh, if you ask me. But overall, I mean, these are both pretty dynamic teams. They have the offense. They have the different styles, but they make those styles work. And now it's time to see if both of these teams – can take those styles and potentially win the Pac-12 and get a high-profile bowl game and potential bowl win. Yeah, I, I am intrigued to see this. Keaton Slovis, as I mentioned, Gunslinger versus Jaden Daniels, who is kind of a Teddy Bridgewater. I feel like uh, Jaden Daniels is Teddy Bridgewater with more potential, with, with more arm strength and, and, a, and a better deep ball. Because Jaden Daniels only threw two picks last season. So these are two very different quarterbacks. Can't wait to see it. Pac-12 is back. College football is truly arrived now. Speaking of college football, there's actually another very interesting game that I am going to check out on Saturday. The Clemson Tigers will take on the Notre Dame Fighting Irish in primetime. Top four matchup. Trevor Lawrence tested positive for COVID-19 and will not play DJ Yuga Lalele will I think I butchered it so bad but we have yeah top four match between Clemson and Notre Dame Notre Dame is in the ACC this season Johnny what are your thoughts on this top four matchup first off it's DJ Uyagalale it's Uyagalale Ooh, I can't say it. It's a tongue twister. Uyagalale. There we go. That's how you say Uyagalale. it. Got it. Yes. Boom. That's how you say it. Now, this game was a primetime matchup, and it is unfortunate that Trevor Lawrence is not going to be playing in this game. Now, he's going to be on the sideline, as reports have said, but he's not going to be starting or playing. And that really takes away the luster from this game. But even still, this is a pretty high-profile game for both programs, should either or at least – should one of them make the college football playoff. This is a resume win if there ever was one. Even still, DJ Uyagalale is the real deal, I think. He was a five-star recruit, one of the highest recruits in one of the previous recruiting cycles. And luckily for him, I think you don't want anyone to get COVID. You don't want Trevor Lawrence to get COVID. You don't want anybody to get COVID, really. But if there was a time where Lawrence had something had to happen with Lawrence, at least it happened the, this previous week, which at least gave Uyagalale some playing time. Because if he didn't play last week, he would be going to Notre Dame to start his first ever college football game. Now think of that. Now look, Notre Dame has had its issues in years past. People have said it's overrated. It's an overrated program. Regardless, going to Notre Dame, and playing against Notre Dame and starting against Notre Dame in your first ever career college football start, that's almost Dwayne Haskins starting against the Buffalo Bills-esque. That is terrible. That's almost a death sentence almost. So it's actually a good thing, I think, that Uyagalale had some playing time 
last week and actually performed quite well. He was really well. He played really explosive. He threw the ball down the field. He did everything you would want from a quarterback thrown into the situation like he was. So I think with that in mind, you cannot write Clemson off in this game. And I think when you look at this game, it's pretty much the youth versus the veteran. And when you look at redshirt senior Ian Book for the Notre Dame Fighting Irish going up against a young DJ Uyagalai, I think that really creates for a dynamic matchup. And I think you'll see two different play styles like we've seen with Jaden Daniels and Keon Slovis that we just talked about. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how this game plays out. I want to know how Clemson uses Travis Etienne. I want to know if they use him more in the run game to maintain clock possession or if they let Uyagalai let it loose with the gunslinging arm. I think that'll be very interesting. Regardless, though, I think in the grand scheme of things, I think if Notre Dame can pull this game off, I think you pretty much have to – that pretty much legitimizes them as a college football playoff team. That's one of the teams right there, honestly. And even still, even though one of these teams are going to lose, I think – Regardless, I think if either team wins out after they lose this game, I still think they have a shot to make the playoff too. So it's very possible that you'll see two ACC teams make the college football playoff. So even though this is a dynamic matchup, this is a huge matchup for both programs, I don't think it's the end of the world if one of these teams loses as well. So I think overall, it's going to be an explosive game. I'm definitely going to tune in. So yeah, it'll be fun. Saturday should be a fun day with USA Arizona State at at 10 Mountain Time slash Arizona time. The Xfinity NASCAR Xfinity Series Championship at three o'clock, which I will be covering. And at four o'clock, sorry, five o'clock will be the Clemson Notre Dame matchup. Good stuff on Saturday. If you're if you're if you're a sports fan like we are, a lot of good stuff on Saturday. It's the final weekend of NASCAR. Wow. It's been, it's been a journey with that and college football about is heating up NFL action. We're, we're approaching the, the late season playoff chase in the NFL. Great stuff. So be sure to tune into that. The one thing I'll add about Clemson Notre Dame is Travis Etienne is arguably the most important player in Clemson. He had over 200 total yards against Boston college. And remember Clemson was trailing 20 to 13 against Boston college. So at halftime. So things were looking a bit shaky for Clemson, but Travis Etienne, just a phenomenal playmaker. Can you, can you believe that he's been around four years? Feel feels like he's been around 10 because he feels like he's been at Clemson forever. But yeah, he is a senior this year looking for one more championship. If Clemson can get past Notre Dame, they're, they're basically their one true test. Then they should find themselves in the playoff once again. I'll just say this. You know how last season – uh, when, 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 you know, college football was actually at the center of almost all of our conversations on podcasts and radio shows. Remember how we blasted Clemson for not having a schedule? Well, you can't say that this year because they actually have a legit opponent in Notre Dame. So that's good, at least. We're about to wrap up this podcast. We're just going to briefly cover. So the info trade deadline came and went and n- nothing, nothing. Well, there were a couple of trades that happened, but it was Sunday night and Monday morning. So Desmond King was traded to the Tennessee Titans. Quan Alexander was traded to the New Orleans Saints for Kiko Alonso in the fifth. And Avery Williamson was traded to the Pittsburgh Steelers, which I called when I said the five trades I predicted to the Pittsburgh Steelers. So Avery Williamson goes from a winless Jets team to a, to a perfect Steelers team. Any thoughts on these trades or the trade deadline in general? Overall, the trade deadline was pretty anticlimactic. I figured the Green Bay Packers or at least some more NFC teams would try to make a move considering the fact that the NFC, to me, has a lot more parity than the AFC. So I think in that regard, I thought that there were a couple missed opportunities there. But in regard to the trades that were made, the Desmond King trade, I really liked that for the Titans, a former All-Pro. And then for Avery Williamson, again, the Pittsburgh Steelers lost Devin Bush with an ACL injury. So they get at least some depth. And even though there are some coverage issues with Williamson, I think that from a depth perspective, I think that's a great move. And again, going from a winless team to an undefeated team, I imagine that has some sort of positive effect on your psyche and morale. So I think that in that regard, I think it's a great move. 
I mean, from those moves that were made, pretty niche moves, pretty solid moves, but there were really no blockbuster moves. And I'm not sure if we should have expected this from the get-go. Again, global pandemic, potential expanded playoffs. A lot of factors going in play here in this trade deadline, more so than usual. But even still, I figured more NFC teams would at least take a gamble. And I didn't really see that gamble being taken. So overall, an underwhelming trade deadline, but almost an expected trade deadline, almost. I feel like the biggest reason why the trades didn't happen besides COVID is teams were asking for too much. The Packers were asking a little, the, excuse me, the Texans were asking a little bit too much for Will Fuller, for the Packers. And the, and the Washington football team was asking too much for Ryan Kerrigan. So it's just teams couldn't agree on value. Now, I want to quickly touch on the Desmond King tricks. I think that was the best of the three. Desmond King was an all-pro corner in 2018. The 2018, which was the year the LA Chargers went 12-4, and four, made the playoffs, won at Baltimore in the wildcard round, and then was railroaded by the New England Patriots in the divisional playoff round. He's also, he's also a good punt return. He has two punt return for touchdowns in his career. The Tennessee Titans, they just lost the Cincinnati Bengals. They are free-falling right now. The third down defense is awful. So after last week against the Steelers, their third down conversion rate was 60.98%. That's, that's more than half of the opponents converting their third down chances. After Cincinnati Bengals, it's now 61.9%. So, so that percentage just went up against Cincinnati Bengals. The Tennessee Titans' third down defense is awful. They needed cornerback reinforcements considering at former LSU Tiger and another one of those drafted players, Christian Fulton, is on IR. Dory Jackson has not played a game this season, so the Titans badly needed secondary reinforcements. And Desmond King is also skilled at blitzing, so the Titans badly needed that. And oh, the Chargers. Oh, the Chargers. They, they, they need all the help they can get, considering how do you lose a 24-3 lead to the Denver Broncos? Yikes. But yeah, that, that, that happened. I, I, I'm still in shock they lost that game. But yeah, that is going to do it for episode 15 of Ahead of the Count. I was your host, D. Cannon Clark from South Sean Clark, with Johnny Crane. Thank you for coming on. Any final thoughts? Stay safe out there. Go vote if you haven't yet. Well, by the time this podcast is posted, I hope you voted. But regardless, stay safe out there, folks. Have a good one. We'll see you next week. We'll, we'll, we'll see you next week, indeed. I was your host, Dee Kenny Clark himself, Sean Clark. Have a great rest of your day. Stay safe. Hope you all voted. And enjoy the return of college football.